On this episode of This Week in Linux, an arbitrary code execution vulnerability was found in the Linux kernel, but it isn't quite as what some sources are making it out to be. Rumors are going around for Ubuntu and Snaps, but again, it's not what people are making it out to be. Then we'll get into some actual good news with some change changes to Flathub, new releases for Geary, Digicam, Riot, IM, Kali Linux, Backbox, and much more. Also check out some interesting views about ARM shared by Linus Torvalds. All that and much more coming up. I'm Michael Tanell with Tux Digital, and this is your weekly source for Linux good news. This episode of This Week in Linux is sponsored by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean offers the simplest, most developer-friendly cloud platform. It's optimized to make managing and scaling apps easy with an intuitive API, multiple storage options, integrated firewalls, load balancers, and more. You get access to this plus access to their world-class customer support for as low as $5 per month. DigitalOcean offers 2,000 cloud-agnostic tutorials to help you stay up-to-date with the latest open source software, languages, and frameworks. You can get started on DigitalOcean for two months for free with a $100 credit by going to do.co slash tux. That's do.co slash tux. You can use that $100 credit to try out a bunch of their small droplets or some of their big beastie droplets, like their 16 gig RAM, six virtual CPU droplet with six terabytes of transfer. Again, you can get started on DigitalOcean with that $100 free credit by going to do.co slash tux. That's do.co slash tux. And thanks again to DigitalOcean for sponsoring this week's episode. Up first in the show this week, there has been found an arbitrary code execution vulnerability inside of the Linux kernel. Now, this is definitely not a good thing. Uh, Anytime you see a code execution vulnerability, it's not good. However, there are some things where the, the things that are being claiming out in sources are not as what they seem. People are claiming it is more severe than it really is. Now, it is still pretty bad, but it's not as bad as people are claiming. So let's just get into it. So the Linux kernel has a vulnerability that goes up to 4.20.10. Now, it doesn't include every single version up to that, but a lot of them, it is included. Uh, so the 4.20.11 is the the first version as released. That fixes it. I think 4.20.12 is the current stable, but... Dot 11 also has the fix. So anyway, in the Linux kernel through 4.20.10, uh, AF underscore ALG underscore release in crypto slash AF underscore ALG dot C neglects to set a null value for a certain structure member, which leads to a use after free in SockFS underscore set attribute. All right, we're good. Move on. All right, cool. I'm kidding. Thankfully, uh, Wade Mealing, the uh, analyst who investigated this flaw for Red Hat, had a nice description and like le- explain like breakdown of all these different things of what they mean. So, you know, props to to Wade for doing that. Uh, so, first off, if you're not aware, an API is an application programming interface. It's like a set of predefined functions that a library offers uh, to the other developers and other other software. There's also a crypto API, which is the same thing but with cryptography. So the crypto AF underscore ALG is related to that. Then there's also the use after free or UAF. And this is a mechanism in which an attacker takes advantage of a flaw in a program where the compiler has marked a section of memory as free and able to be used, but instead it was able to be used to uh, to write in that location through an unintended consequence. So it's not actually free. 
This allows them to take control of the flow of the operations that should be executed and redirect the program's path, often towards executing attacker's path. AF underscore ALG is a family of protocol like TCP, you know, like the TCP IP that powers the internet, but it's not network related. It only runs on the local system and it doesn't make packets like TCP IP does. So instead it's only used for applications that need to share secrets, well, secrets within the kernel. So this is a fairly bad flaw, but it's not as severe as people are making it out to be. The National Institute of Standards and Technology, or NIST, scored it as a 9.8 out of 10 critical in their National Vulnerability Database. But that score is not accurate at all. Uh, this score is based on attack vector being network, but the AF underscore key is not a protocol that is exposed to the, via the network in this particular instance, so the score is, should not be that high at all. Uh, they've, the, in it, the NIST has updated their page to reflect that the score might be flawed, but they haven't really rescored it yet. So we don't really know what that score would be, but it's definitely not 9.8. Some are claiming that the flaw date backs to Linux 2.6. So they're saying that 2.6 to 4.20 is, uh, all these are affected, but that's not necessarily true either. Now the length of time that it is affected is pretty long. It's about two years. But based on the uh, some cert research, I found that it's it's pretty much was the the exposing of the flaw was started because of a change that was made in 4.10. So from 4.10 to 4.20 is really where the biggest issues fly. Even though the code that is the problem existed in as ba far back as 2.6, it really wasn't usable. Uh, it, the flaw itself wasn't exposed until a change made in 4.10. So. You know, there's a, a little bit of some misinformation that's being spread around about this particular flaw, but overall, um, it still is a is a bad thing. So, a local attacker, given enough time and effort, can develop an exploit as a process running as a user to get to get above above root level privileges. So, root level is a certain tier that you can elevate your privileges to be able to do things. Now. This particular flaw would allow software or an attacker to get even higher privileges at like kernel level privileges, which would not be very good. But as I said, it's not as severe as it's made out to be because it requires a local attacker to do it. So you can't, it's not going to be over the internet. It has to be local access and there has to be a significant amount of time in order to create an a, a attack vector to actually, you know, take advantage of this vulnerability. And also the patch has already been refixed in the latest versions of the kernel. So it's not likely that this would be an issue for anybody, but you still need to update your system as soon as possible, especially if you have some servers that are in the cloud somewhere, etc. So you definitely need to update. It is important to update, but it's not as critical as these sites are trying to make it seem. So, you know, just so you know. Uh, an interesting side note, too, is that Lenart Pottering posted on his Twitter that Systemd actually provides a protection for this. So he says, by the way, Systemd can protect you from the kernel arbitrary code execution. Yeah, use something like, and he explains the variable that you have to do in your services unit file to dis disallow the usage of AF underscore ALG, which blocks the socket family. So that's kind of interesting in the sense that like, a lot of people like got up in arms about system D whenever there's a, a bug. Um, but uh, it's just kind of funny that this, in this particular case, system D might help in this issue. But anyway, uh, so yeah, the, the Linux kernel code execution vulnerability is not good. 
but it's not as bad as it being made out to be. So if you want to find out, find out more about this particular issue, I'll have a link to some the uh, CVE as well as some more information in the show notes. Up next in the show is a, another topic that has been uh, a little bit of uh, misinformation being spread around. Uh, it's essentially saying that the Ubuntu uh, team or Canonical is trying to replace apt with snaps, saying replacing devs with snaps, and this is just not true. So this, the reason why people are saying this is because a blueprint was posted by Kenny Strawn. Uh, Blueprints is a system on Launchpad that Canonical made. Well, Canonical made Launchpad, and Launchpad is kind of like a custom GitHub thing. I think it was actually created before GitHub existed. So uh, it's it's kind of like a collaborative code and translation and discussion website that runs Ubuntu and the infrastructure for Ubuntu and all the flavors and everything. So it's just, it kind of, a lot of people use it as a reference to people who work on Ubuntu, but anybody could have an account on Launchpad and put their projects on Launchpad. And in this case, Kenny Strawn has an account and decided to make a suggestion, and this is all it is is a suggestion, about replacing apt with snaps. Because he his opinion is that he likes snaps and he thinks snaps are a great thing. So it's a fair opinion, and it's a totally fair reason to offer a suggestion, you know. More, more power to you to go feel free to do so if you have an idea feel free to let them know but in this case a lot of people were taking this suggestion as someone from canonical making a statement that this was going to happen and for the most part the, it was more than likely the reason is because if you scroll down to the very bottom of the page there's a section it says uh, submitter uh, assignee and approver now the word approver makes you kind of think it makes some people think that it was approved by the person rather than the person who would have to approve it, because that's what it means. That whoever has to approve it will be assigned that, even if it's not been approved. They're still marked as this would be the approver. But unfortunately, the way it's structured, it all it says is just approver. And the person put there was Mark Shuttleworth. And Mark Shuttleworth was probably put there by Kenny Strong, because technically you can tag anybody if you want to. The issue here is that this was just a suggestion by someone, and who has nothing to do with Canonical or Ubuntu, is just a user and who happen to have an account on Launchpad. But if you look on the left side of this particular post, you'll see the status of this particular discussion is not started. And then the direction says needs approval, which would imply that it's not at all approved or even started the discussion. So a lot of people were saying that it has been done and that they were planning to change it and turn to snaps into like 1904. So there's like, there's YouTube videos, there's some uh, Reddit posts, there's some blog posts talking about it, but it's not at all. That's not happening. So Alan Pope on Twitter mentions, uh, he responds to this and says, it's not official. It's not a thing we're doing. Just because someone made a blueprint doesn't make it a fact. Anyone with a Launchpad account can create blueprints. It's a historical part of the openness of the Ubuntu community. Anyone can make suggestions on how to change or improve Ubuntu. We can discuss and work on things, uh, park them, improve them, or reject them. In actual fact, we don't really use blueprints much anymore as a planning tool, and haven't for a few years, a few years really. What's actually interesting is I wanted to talk about some, to use this as a jumping point to another thing. First, Snaps were announced a few years ago, and Mark Shuttleworth was asked in an interview, will they replace Debs? And I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but he essentially said that they consider Debian a vital piece of Ubuntu desktop, and they have no intention of replacing Debs or Apt at all. So 
they also consider it as like a symbiotic relationship between Ubuntu and Debian. So the base system will continue to be Debian, and there's no plan to ever change that. It's worth noting, though, that the, the Ubuntu does have a snaps-only system called Ubuntu Core, but that's specifically for, designed for Internet of Things or IoT devices. But the reason I wanted to like use this as a jumping-off point is that uh, the, the, the symbiotic relationship part of Ubuntu and Debian goes a lot farther than a lot of people think. So, for example, uh, some people think that Ubuntu is a derivative of Debian and therefore is you know taking advantage of Debian and they're not contributing back. However, they're heavily contributing back. So uh, it's worth noting that the, the symbiotic relationship is not just because of the derivative part, but also a lot of employees that w work for Canonical are people who developed on Debian. So for example, the guy who, one of the developers or the creators of Synaptic Package Manager is a Canonical employee. He's also a maintainer for Apt. So like the App Package Manager or the App Package Tool. So like the fact that the, they have people who work for Canonical work heavily in Debian is shows where there's more of a symbiotic relationship because without Debian, Ubuntu wouldn't exist but a lot of the benefits that are in Debian are thanks to employees of Canonical because they provide, they, you know, contribute back upstream heavily. So I just want to make point that a lot of people seem to hate on Ubuntu and Canonical for a variety of different reasons, but in the sense of you know, their contributions to the community, they do a ton. So anyway, the apt replacement thing with snaps is not true and we can just move on. Speaking of universal app formats, Flatpak has announced that they're doing some changes to the Flathub. They're introducing a new repo manager, a microservice written in Rust. They've improved their GitHub integration, and they're also uh, updating a new publishing workflow for developers. One of those changes, and one of the actually the biggest change for this particular uh, announcement, is that they're going to be adding application beta releases for application maintainers and developers wanting to offer up early access or testing versions of their software. So you can, instead of downloading the latest stable version, you'll be able to download the latest beta version or early access version of these applications that, you're, that are being put into the Flathub. So that's a pretty cool system. And I'm, uh, this, it's actually kind of taken a while. Um, they have been planning to do this for a while, but it's uh, finally available. Or, well, I don't know if it's technically available right now, but there is a beta repo that you can use. Uh, so, but unfortunately... There's only like I think five or six applications in the beta repo. So while yes, it is available, it doesn't have a lot of uh, you know adoption yet because it's pretty it's brand new. So anyway, if you would like to try out some software uh, in the beta software in the repos, I'll have a link to the this announcement as well as how to get to those repos in the show notes. Up next in the show is Alfred, an automated software installation tool. Now, there's a lot of things that create, exist like this. Uh, there's some scripts that you can use. There's even um, elementary script that's kind of similar. But what the purpose of this is a small script to automatically install some of the most common software and tools in Ubuntu, Debian, and derivative distros. So this is currently only available for Ubuntu and Debian. However, it's built with Python and relies on Zenity for the UI. Because it's built on Python, it's possible that the dependencies that it could use, as well as the what it checks for in the recipes, 
could be used for, you could change those up to make it work on anything because Python is available for everything. So in theory, because it's just running commands in the background, you would be able to adjust it more than likely. But at the moment, they're just working on, like this is the first uh, version or release of it. So they're not, uh, I don't know if it's the, the absolute first version, but it's the first one they announced that uh, they're comfortable with telling people about it. So uh, what's really cool about this is it allows you to install software to your system and uh, you can do the install. You can do this installation in an unintended approach. You can say, "Here's all the software I want to do," and then install them, and then it will just do it in a sequence. So, if you want to search for, like, install the most common software, like browsers or um, various different editing tools and things like that, that you you know very most common things, uh, you can do it through this tool. What's cool is that this one also this tool supports uh, devs from the regular repos, uh, PPAs as well as snaps. So with the PPAs, if there's a piece of software that is in this particular uh, application that is not up to date in the repo, but there is a PPA for it, it will automatically add the PPA and then install the software. So uh, this is a very interesting thing. It has support for, I think right now it's like 50, 40 to or so applications. Uh, but they also said that they are open to adding more. They intend to keep adding more and uh, more software as well as common tasks, including uh, they currently have the ability to install the graphics drivers. So depending on what your system is, it'll detect what what driver drivers you need via Ubuntu's um, checking system, and it will install those drivers for you. Uh, what's so it's a pretty cool system because of how flexible it can be. Now I don't think it's actually intended to be flexible uh, necessarily, but it because of how it was written it seems like it really could be. They have the uh, this recipe system, which is basically a JSON file that has information about where uh, the type of uh, application package it is, where the, lo the package is located. So for example, if it's a dev file located on a different server or a different repo, it can t you can say it's from this PPA in this dev file, or you can say it's a snap, and you could search for this particular snap uh, name. Uh, you can also do different snap, um, like, you know, you can do an edge snap if you wanted to because it's based on how you set up the recipe. So you could create your own recipes or you can make uh, recipes and submit them to the project to be included for everyone. So this is a really cool thing because it allows you to easily deploy uh, software or maybe if you're like a distro hopper, you could use this to easily install the software you want. And the reason I think that it has a lot of potential is because of this recipe system. So because it's written in Python and because it uses this JSON system, it, in theory, could be heavily modified and customized. So you could tell it to install specific software from specific repos for just you, and then you could even like remove the, the software that they provide, put your own recipes in, and then get whatever software you want. So it's a really cool idea. Uh, so I don't think this was intended but it might make it possible to be used as like a framework to build your own app install butler. I call it butler because of the Alfred in the logo. Anyway, I don't know if it's actually called an app butler. Is that a thing? Anyway, let's move on. So anyway, if you're interested in checking it out, Alfred automated software installer, I'll have a link to it in the show notes. I think it's pretty cool. And uh, I look, I haven't tried it personally myself, but I look forward to trying it out because I do want to have some create some custom recipes to see how well it works. Yeah, so link in the show notes. Up next in the show is a latest release for Geary 0.13. And this is a 
really nice email client that looks really good, has a nice modern interface with the GTK toolkit. It has a really uh, convenient structure of messaging. So like the, it has a conversation or threaded messaging structure, similar to how uh, Gmail does it, but it looks nice and cleaner in the way they do it. And this new release adds a new user interface for creating and managing email clients. Uh, it's a very, it's kind of a, a simple, clean approach to adding new email accounts. And it's, I said clients, I meant accounts. Moving on. It also has integration with uh, GNOME online accounts, which allows you to uh, provide login access through OAuth support for, for some services that support OAuth. It also has changed some things for the displaying conversation so that they now load faster and smoother. Uh, it's changed some things about composing new messages. It now supports ordered number lists. And uh, one of the things that's really good about it is that it now supports a pasting in rich text. So let's say, for example, if you are on a website and there's some bold text and you copy that text, it will automatically bold it when you paste it, which is very convenient. Uh, I've had a lot of times where some email clients don't do that and it's been painful. So it's really nice to have that, uh, that uh, transition much more smooth. Uh, they've also done some things where they made it possible to uh, flag spoofed email addresses for spam. Uh, they've made it so that when you send an email in the application, it'll do a notification inside the app to let you know that it has been sent. And they've also done some bug fixes and improvements to like fixing the unread email count to so that they show the updates correctly. So there's a lot of stuff that's going happening in Geary. There's a couple things that I wish Geary had. Now, like Geary is such a good application that's like so close to being like uh, something I could recommend. You know, it's it's something that's very simple. If you want a nice, clean, modern interface email and you don't need a lot of features, you don't need a lot of power, then Geary is a good option. But there are some things that it doesn't have that's so annoying that if it just had these things, it would be so much better. Like for example, you can't sort your email in any way whatsoever. You either have it listed as it comes in chronologically, or you can search for particular uh, emails. But what if you wanted to search or like display in the list of emails uh, the order based on like a sort by unread emails? So only show me unread. You can't do that in Geary. And there's a lot of things that are like that. So like very little sorting ability whatsoever, if at all. If you technically count filtering with searches, I wouldn't. But you could choose whether you want to or not. But it's just like there's so many things that it does well, but also some fundamental things that it's missing that if it had these, it would be a fantastic email client. I kind of wish that the Thunderbird team would just take the design and layout of Geary and just like slap it on top of Thunderbird. Have all the benefits of the, of the power and function of Thunderbird, but look nice and modern and seamless. Uh, so... If you don't need all these features, Geary is a fantastic option, and um, I'm glad that they are uh, continuing to work on it because we uh, talked about a few episodes, not, well, many episodes ago, we talked about the fact that the company behind um, Geary had abandoned it, and it's nice that you know Gnome picked it up so that they can continue working on it because it does have a ton of potential, and I do hope that they get to the point where it is a viable option for desktop email clients. So if you'd like to learn more or try it out, I'll have a link to Geary 0.13 in the show notes. So another app released this week with Digicam 6.0. Digicam is a really cool open source image organizer, and it's, it's very convenient. It's made by the KDE team, and it's really good. It's powerful. It's got a ton of features. But the latest release has a lot of cool new features, 
Specifically, it has the ability to not just be an image organizer, but now supports video files, so you can manage all your videos in the same way that you did photos. So that's cool. So they've been working on this list, particular release for the past two years, and they've added a ton of cool features. One, of course, being the video file management that I mentioned previously. And that's by itself enough to be, you know, an awesome thing to check out. Uh, secondly, they also added integration of some import-export web services tools like Lighttable, Image Editor, and Show Photo. They've added some more, some more uh, uh, raw file decoding engine that supports new cameras. So the new version of LibRAW 0.19 introduces uh, 200 new raw formats, including the most recent camera models available on the market. This includes a variety of different models including the uh, iPhone, uh, Fujifilm, Nikon, Android devices, DJI, and a lot more. Simplified web service authentication using OAuth has also been added as a protocol, and they've also added some tools to export your images to uh, Pinterest, OneDrive, and Box. I think that's box.com. So uh, they've also done a huge factoring of the source code, so it's been able to reduce external dependencies to make it the compilation and packaging and maintenance uh, more uh, simplified and if efficient. So it's very, very cool. Uh, Digicam 6.0, uh, check it out if you're interested. Uh, I'm definitely interested to try out the video file management because that sounds really interesting. So yeah, I have a link in the show notes for Digicam 6.0. Up next in the show is the 1.0 release of Riot.im. Now this is great. If you've never heard of Riot, uh, Riot.im is a front end for the Matrix protocol. Matrix is a decentralized network protocol for um, kind of like an open source uh, Slack alternative. So if you never heard of Slack, it's kind of like you have rooms and you have um, accounts and rooms that you can go into and you can have um, different like, direct messaging and all kinds of stuff for teams or you could do it in a Another approach that Riot has is to have integration with IRC. So you can actually have a bridge between IRC rooms and matrix rooms and have them interconnected together so that when you talk in one, you talk in the other one automatically. Now, uh, you can technically do that with other bots, but matrix has its own built-in bridge so that it's very seamless in order to do that. So that is awesome. But for the longest time, Riot was hideous. It looked terrible. Uh... It was really annoying to use. But now, it's much nicer. They have a brand new design with 1.0. They have a nice, clean, modern design. And if you prefer dark themes, they do have a dark theme built into it, which that's what I use when I use Riot. And uh, they've changed. They have new setting system, new room list system. Uh, they've changed the way the login structure is built. Uh, there's a lot of new UI changes, and they've done a lot of stability and performance enhancements. You know, it's really nice to see this, especially with their uh, desktop software. Uh, they have the new app for Riot, and it's just so nice. What's really, really cool about it is that they also, on top of the UI changes, they also have a fully encrypted uh, messaging structure so that if you want to have end-to-end -end encryption, you can do that. Now, previously, when you wanted to do end-to-end -end encryption with um, Matrix, it was kind of hit or miss because the client would have to support it as well as the Matrix protocol. And the Matrix Protocol kind of had it in beta for a little while. But now it's available for 
both uh, you know the client of Riot and Matrix, so you can activate it if you want to without having to worry that it's going to mess up some systems like it like you used to kind of have to worry. But that's not anything, an issue anymore, so it's very nice to see. And another thing that they did is that they changed the way that the device verification works for the encryption. So if you were to send a message to someone to verify that they are encrypted, uh, that they have encryption they're enabled on their device, you used to have to do this uh, passphrase system. And this is the most common thing for a lot of different systems and a lot of different software is that you'd have to share a pass key or a passphrase to each other. So that, that phrase would have to be fairly big and cumbersome. But now uh, Riot.im is using emoji-based device verification. So when you try to connect to someone, and if it's correct, um, as far as the, the, the sharing of the encryption keys has worked properly, you will both be given a set of emojis. And if your emojis match, it means the keys have successfully transferred. So it makes it a lot easier. You just describe what the emoji looks like rather than, and it's like seven or so emojis to make it you know, a much cleaner approach to verifying whether someone has encryption enabled or not. So that's very cool too. But the brand new design is definitely the, the best thing about it. Um, they also improved the UI for not only the web version and the desktop version, but also the, uh, the Android version. I assume the iPhone as well, but I don't know. But the Android version also looks really nice. So I'm happy because it used to be terrible and now I don't mind using it. So very cool. Oh, by the way, if you've never used Riot or Matrix before, you can create a Matrix account through Riot. And another benefit that it has is that you can join IRC chat rooms via Riot and Matrix. Uh, Matrix is the protocol and Riot is the client to be, you know, just to clarify again. But you can join an IRC, uh, IRC room through Matrix via Riot and basically have all the benefits of IRC without all the annoyances of IRC. So one of the worst things about IRC is if you're not in the chat room at the time of the discussion, you can't go back and look at it unless you have a client that will save logs while you're not there. Or you have a client that has a core client system or has like a bouncer. And just it's complicated to set those things up. Whereas Matrix and Riot, you just log into the IRC chat room, save through Freenode, and it just logs it all the time. And you can go and check it whenever you want to. It's a really cool feature that uh, one, makes one of the reasons to use Riot very easy because it makes IRC much more modern and uh, still looks good, still has the benefits of Riot and the benefits of IRC. So if you want to check it out, I have a link to it, riot.im for 1.0 in the show notes. Speaking of Matrix, KDE has announced that they are adopting the Matrix instant messaging service in their you know, infrastructure of how they handle discussions for various different development approaches and everything and all their, everything like that. So this is really cool because, you know, KDE has been using IRC for many, many, many years, and they had recently added uh, telegram to their uh, set of communication tools, but telegram has its own issues. Now, you, because riot and matrix have, cha have improved so much, over the course of a couple of years that they've become a viable solution for big organizations to collaborate and uh, develop uh, their, you know, all their different uh, discussions and different projects that they do. So like Kitty has like a ton of projects. So um, this is a good example of how, you know, how far matrix and Riot has come for an organization to adopt in like this. 
Uh, and also it's because using Riot is a lot easier than IRC for people who are just getting into the collaboration uh, efforts of you know, open source development and everything. So they, they might not have used IRC previously if they're you know new to development. So you want to give an easier onboarding uh, option, which previously was Telegram, but Telegram has its own issues because like with Telegram, the there's no central organization for Telegram. You have to know what the groups are. You have to know like how many groups there are. You have to know which ones they are. You have to know the, the username to get into the group in order to, to have the conversation. It's just kind of a mess. Whereas uh, Matrix and Tele in Matrix, Matrix and Riot structure, you can actually have a list of uh, the different uh, channels when you go into one and just like easily find the other ones. Much better overall. So this is really good to see. Uh, this means that you can also get the benefits of Matrix that we talked about with the IRC, which is kind of what they um, are doing it for because you get the benefits of IRC, but you get a nice UI and you get the infinite scroll back because it keeps logs um, for the each user keeps their own logs if you go into that channel with your matrix account and also you get like typing notifications when people are talking to you you can do file transfers and all kinds of stuff so this is very cool and um, yeah so glad to see matrix getting adopted by organizations like this and hopefully some more will do this do the same so yeah uh, next topic up next in the show is the first of a few distro news and first up is EasyOS 1.0.8. Now, EasyOS is an interesting name for this distribution because it's fairly complicated to when, once you get the hang of it, it might not be so difficult. But it's it's a very unique structure, so it would have a little bit of learning curve. So Easy is a experimental distribution that is very container focused. So EasyOS is designed from scratch to support containers. So any app can run in a container. In fact, the entire desktop can run in a container if you want it to. So the container management is done by a GUI. So you don't have to do any command line structure to make it work. Uh, so I guess that's kind of how they define it is easy. And they also have their own custom container mechanism called Easy Containers. So it's in the container system is also designed from scratch. So it doesn't use Docker, LXC, or anything like that. Easy Containers. Um, also or have like very little overhead. So they say the base size of each container is only like a few or several uh, kilobytes. So that is pretty cool. If you've ever heard of Puppy Linux, you may have heard of uh, Barry Caller. I'm not really sure how to say your name, sorry. Barry K is the creator of Puppy Linux. He created it in 2003, and then he turned the Puppy Linux over to the Puppy community in 2013 so that he could work on some other things. Then he went on to make quirky um, Linux as well as Easy OS. So this is my if you're if you try it out and if you're familiar with Puppy, you might notice a lot of similarities. While it's not a fork of Puppy, it does share quite a few things. So for example, they use the same desktop environment, which was the J Window Manager or JWM. I think it's Joe's Window Manager, and uh, the Rocks uh, Desktop File Roller, and also has like the similar menu hierarchy. Um, the same layered file system. It uses pet packages from Puppy and a lot of other things. So like, it's very similar, but it's not a fork of Puppy. One of the cool things about the layered file system that Puppy has that EasyOS also has is that it allows for like read-only usage of your system, meaning that you can typically you know restart your application and go back to fresh if because you didn't change anything. And it allows you to roll back updates and 
you know, roll forward even uh, really easily because of the layered file system provides a snapshotting like kind of by default, like built into that system. So it's a very, very cool thing. Now it is worth noting that just like Puppy, you run as root in EasyOS by default. The Puppy usage of running as root implies that you should know, you know, it's 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 a philosophy difference, they say. So you should know how to use your system more. Um, you should be more careful, I guess, is what I'm trying to say, if you're going to run as root. Uh, typically, it's suggested to never do that. But if you want to, then, you know, that's there's your decision. Uh, but EasyOS might be a different situation because running as root, but it also has the container structure. It might not be as a um, a recommendation to not do that because of the system that they're doing. But I don't know, because I haven't personally tried this, but it does look like a really interesting thing. They are, since it's very new and it's very experimental, they don't have a ton of packages available. However, you can, in theory, install another system's packages and compile from there. Well, you not really technically install the packages, but compile from those packages inside of EasyOS. Um, but, you know, that's definitely like experimental as well. Anyway, if you're interested in trying out EasyOS 1.0.8, I have a link in the show notes. Up next in the show is Kali Linux 2019.1 has been released, and this is the latest version of the Kali Linux uh, ethical hacking hacking operating system. Uh, if you're not aware, Kali, Kali Linux is probably the most popular uh, application or distribution for um, ethical hacking or pen, penetration testing, uh, you know, those kinds of things. Uh, it's probably the most popular. Actually, I could fairly safely say it is the most popular. Um, but uh, Kali Linux, the latest version, adds a lot of cool stuff, such as a Raspberry Pi edition, so that you can now use uh, Kali Linux in, on, on a Raspberry Pi, as well as Banana Pi and the Banana Pro single board computers. So that's nice to see, because it makes it a lot easier for people to try it out, because if you have a Raspberry Pi laying around, you could try out all the different tools without having to change your system or putting in a VM or etc. So that's pretty cool. Uh, this latest version also adds Metasploit 5.0, which has a new search engine, new evasion modules, uh, integrated web services, and support for writing shellcode in C. Now, if you've never heard of Metasploit, it's kind of like a framework of modules of various different tools. It's kind of like a Swiss army knife of hacking. It has like hundreds and hundreds of plugins and modules to uh, do various different things. It's kind of like a catch-all tool. Like uh, there's there's other tools that are better in certain cases, um, like specifically for packaging, like network just uh, detecting. But Metasploit is really cool because you can scan certain things and like scan a system and to see if the Metasploit database has a, a vulnerability detected on that system, and you can then you find out what tools to use for for that met, that exploit that exploit. Anyway, very cool. So we've covered uh, Kali Linux on previous episodes, um, but this we wanted I wanted to talk about this because the additional support for the single board computers makes it a lot easier to, for people to get um, you know try it out for the first time if you're interested in learning about ethical hacking. Uh, if you'd like to learn more about Kali Linux, you can ch- check out some episodes, previous episodes on uh, tuxdigital.com, or you can check out an interview that we did on Destination Linux. If you're not aware, Destination Linux is another podcast that I'm a, I'm a host of. And uh, we talked about uh, Kali Linux in an interview with Bo Weaver, who's a professional pen tester, on episode 105 
of Destination Linux. So I have a link to the latest release of Kali in the show notes, as well as a link to the interview with Bo Weaver on Destination Linux. To continue on the ethical hacking section, we have a new release for uh, Backbox Linux. Uh, Backbox Linux, Linux 5.3 was released. And in like Kali is actually based on Debian. Um, so it's slightly, it has a slightly higher uh, entry barrier to entry than uh, this particular distro, Backbox, because it's based on Ubuntu. So I'm pretty sure it's based on Ubuntu LTS. I'm not sure if it's based on 18.04 or 16.04 right now because I couldn't find a reference to what it was. Um, so I don't really know. But I would assume 18.04 because it's been a new release now, but can't really guarantee that. Um, so anyway, this is a easier way to get started with uh, penetration testing if you wanted to. Now there's going to be a lot more uh, information and tutorials and stuff like that available for Kali Linux more specifically because this is a fairly new distribution. So if you want to have all that like huge documentation, then it might be Kali Linux might be a better option. But in this case, based on a, being on based on Ubuntu, it makes it e more accessible. So that is an interesting choice that they made. So they have. Um, they say they, they, they say that provides a minimal yet complete desktop environment and they have their own software repositories and like on top of the Ubuntu stuff. This particular distribution is XFCE based so, and it has a nice, actually a really nice uh, clean design uh, custom theme for their uh, XFCE setup. So, I mean, that's pretty impressive because a lot of the times these, um, these hacking distributions are not really caring. They care more about the tools than they do the presentation. And this seems to be caring about both fairly uh, uh, seem, uh, equally. So that's nice to see. Uh, but I do want to say that the uh, if you go to the website, the backbox.org, when you go to there, you won't see a download um, there because uh, they have it's really weirdly positioned. So in order to get the download of the ISO, you have to go to the uh, the very top menu says Linux. And then that top menu changes to offer a download button. So I thought that was interesting. But another thing is interesting is that they kind of do the same thing that elementary does, where they do that, um, you know, put the amount of money you want to donate uh, to in order to download the file. Now, the difference here is that Backbox also has a message saying that if you don't want to, you know, pr you know donate any money, you can down you just enter zero and download it that way. So it's kind of like, a very similar approach, but they're also more upfront about the fact that they take zero, you know, as a download for free. So just an interesting approach there. But overall, if you're interested in checking out Backbox Linux, I'll have a link to it in the show notes. Up next in the show, we got some news from the Purism team for the Librem 5 smartphone. And that is it has been delayed for a second time. And they're going to, they haven't actually given a specific release date or release month anymore like they did say it was going to come out in april uh they were said originally it was going to come out in january 2019 then they moved it back to april 2019 and now they've moved it back to quarter three so they don't actually have any month that they're estimating to be this time so they have a three-month window of whether it's accurate to quarter three so i guess there's a they they, were, they learned that they need some more flexibility in their uh, predictions so this announcement is kind of um Unfortunate, but also not really surprising, because their development uh, kits were really were sent out, and the initial batch of the kits um, had some issues with the displays, so they had some display problems with the included panel, and uh, that kind of made it seem like they was going to have these kinds of issues. But in a way, it's kind of good that they're doing this uh, delay 
I mean, not good in the sense that I want, you know, I want them to be out and I want to be able to try it. And I want this, this, the phone to be a success, but it is good in a way because it allowed them to pick a different type of hardware for the selection of the actual product because they were going to be doing the, a kind of a, a not slow, but slower than what they chose, uh, the MX8M Mini. They were going to pick that, but they decided to not. They're going to use the NXPi MX8M Quad SOC. SOC means system on a chip. Um, but the rest is just model numbers. So this is good because originally the Quad model, was they had some power consumption problems and some thermal issues. But... They've been able to, uh, fortunately, uh, with a new software stack, they've been able to overcome those issues, which means that they were able to choose this particular more powerful uh, processor to uh, use in the new uh, hardware. So that's really cool. Uh, so the, the I guess in a roundabout way, the delay is a good thing. But another cool thing is that we now, thanks to this release, release we have some more information about the specs because they were kind of like a little sketchy about what the specs were. They kind of like give you ranges that are not really solidified, but now we have more solid information about what's coming in the phone. So first of all, they're going to have, okay, they technically haven't decided this one either yet, but it's going to be either a 5.5 or a 5.7 display on the phone, but they are going to use the IMX8M quad CPU. They're going to have 32 gigs of internal EMMC storage. It's going to have uh, support for Bluetooth 4, um, uh, 802.11 Wi-Fi for A, B, G, and N. They're also going to do um, a their support for the separate uh, baseband structure with the gel, the Gemalto PLS8. I'm not sure if you say it Gemalto or not, um, but this is really cool because of how like, it allows that the baseband structure is what really is cool about Librem 5 because it allows to have multiple distros as like a you know. A single install kind of like how not really exact how x86 systems allow you to have you know any to show you want but much cleaner and more a better approach than typical arm devices because most arm devices are like locked into you have to create the software for that particular model otherwise it won't work so that's cool that they're doing that they also have support for uh, gps uh, smart card information they're gonna have accelerometer uh, front and back cameras now, they haven't really specified what kind of cameras or what the specs are going to be in the camera, but you know it's getting closer and closer. And I did say that they're going to be using USB Type-C, which is nice. So overall, this is not great news, but you know we got more information about it than we previously had, so that's good, I guess. I have a link to the specs and the rest of the information uh, to the blog post in the show notes. So recently, ARM released a new processor for like uh, data centers and server processing, uh, the uh, including the Neoverse N1 system deployment platform, and this kind of called a con created a conversation around um, ARM in the server world or in the like the large deployment world with um, the cloud servers and etc. Uh, and talking about how you know some people were describing some people like uh, Linus Torvalds. For example, they were they were saying that Linux Torvalds was a person who was a Unixoid, whatever, and that his uh, um, idea that native development or uh, local development and not cross-platform development and cross-development wouldn't work uh, because it's like outdated and old philosophy. So he decided to respond to that particular comment 
And he says that some people think that the cloud means the instruction set doesn't matter. It pretty much does. Uh, he says development at home, deploying the cloud, that's just BS. If you developed on x86, you're going to want to deploy on x86 because you'll be able to run what you test at home or technically what he means by home is like at home or at work or whatever. Cross-development is mainly done for platforms that are so weak as to make it pointless to develop on them, like embedded devices or IoT devices. It says nobody does native development in the embedded space, but whenever the target is powerful enough to support native development, there's a huge pressure to do it that way because the cross-development model is re relatively painful. An ARM spokesperson didn't, didn't agree with Mr. Tovalds. In fact, he said, uh, we appreciate Mr. Tovalds' opinion, and we, we agree that having end-to-end -end development platforms is essential, which is why we've taken an important step by announcing the Neoverse N1 system deployment platform this week. I don't really see how that has anything to do with it because having a end-to-end um, -end development platforms, you know, having that st structure built in means you'd have to have like laptops and desktops that are ARM specific. And they kind of don't have that because of how, how vastly different ARM models are to each other. So it's gonna. There's not really like a standard approach for that. Um, so that seems like a weird way to describe it. But anyway, uh, Linus followed up to the um, to the in the conversation. He he said to say some things about ARM that he did like. He says um, ARM is certainly looking a whole lot better than it used to. They've been uh, they've been nicely strengthening their memory model to the point that these days it's actually one of the better ones. He says he likes the direction ARM is going with the vector math a lot more than the way that Intel is doing with the AVX512. And he says, I will still hold judgment until we actually see widely available hardware that people can actually use for deployment and development. I've just seen too many promises and released hardware that, or released hardware, that never went anywhere and nobody really had reasonably available access to them. So he says, maybe they'll surprise me, but you know, but hey. So... This is an interesting topic because um, I agree completely. The, one of the things that's really interesting about ARM is that it's so efficient and it's also fairly powerful. They have quad-core ARMs and they can do a lot of stuff in a very efficient way. But the ARM structure is so different based on the different models that it creates this issue where you make something that supports this one piece of ARM tech. It doesn't necessarily work with another one. Whereas x86, if you make it work on your computer at home, it more than likely will work on a server because they're very similar. So you can deploy on a bigger computer because they're fairly close to what you built it on so that all your testing and debugging will translate to the thing that you deployed it on. So it might cost more to have that hardware, but you know that you're going to spend less time developing and testing. So that's why a lot of people are using x86 for their servers. Um, so if they were to able to make ARM have a development uh, workstation for you know desktops or laptops that is easily trans translatable to server, then that could be huge for the market. Um, at the moment, they don't really have that. So that's what Linus Torvalds is basically saying. So anyway, on a completely unrelated but kind of related note, there's a new ARM laptop coming out called the Pinebook Pro. It should be coming out pretty soon, and I'm very excited for that. Not really relevant to the topic, but it's it looks awesome. Up next in the show is a follow-up to an to a topic we discussed in a previous episode from Redis Labs. So last time we talked about it, Redis Redis Labs decided to change some of their structure of their software 
to no longer be open source. Now, at the time, they were using this thing called Common Clause, which was added on top of an existing license, uh, specifically the uh, th BSD license. Uh, uh, yeah, it was a BSD license. And that was kind of weird because, no, sorry, it was a, it's on top of an Apache license, right? They have th they BSD license for another piece of their, their code. Anyway, so they, they used the Common Clause on top of, an op of the op Apache license, which is open source, and it was to protect its rights for its modules. And the weird thing is that if you add an extra clause on top of an open source that restricts it, it's no longer open source, so they shouldn't call it that. And that's why a lot of people were bothered, and that's why we talked about it on a previous episode. So this latest news is that they have decided to drop the common clause and instead create their own uh, source-available license called the Redis Source Available License. You know, that makes sense. The RSAL. Um, so this is not an open source license, and they're upfront about that. So uh, Manish Gupta, not sure if I said that name right, uh, he says he's the CMO of Redis Labs. He says that it didn't work to um, use the common clause. There was confusion over whether or not the modules were open source. They're not open source. The RSAL covers some Redis modules, which run on top of open source Redis. The current modules covered by the RSAL are Redis Search, Redis Graph, Redis JSON, Redis ML, and Redis Bloom. So these are all running the RSAL uh, license, but the real main Redis, the core fundamental piece of Redis, is still under a BSD license. So uh, Gupta says that the RSAL, RSAL grants equivalent rights to permissive open source licenses for the majority of users. So developers can use the software, modify the source code, integrate it with their application, and use distribute support and sell their application. So majority of what you normally get with an open source license. However, you're not allowed to use it in any application built with the, these modules in a database. So you, if you, you can't use their proprietary, or well, technically proprietary, closed licensed modules in a database, a caching engine, a stream processing engine, a search engine, an indexing image engine, a machine learning or artificial intelligence engine, uh, because basically these are the things that Redis does for making money and services. So he says, so to, pay, to be perfectly clear, we're not calling it open source because it's not. So that's good. They used to have a confusion because they kind of, they didn't really necessarily call it open source, but they implied it was by using an Apache license. So now at least they are admitting it. It's not. So that's an improvement, I suppose. But overall, I think that it's unfortunate that they decided to close license some of their code. Um, but at least they didn't do the whole thing. And if you wanted to make your own modules that accomplish the same thing, then you don't have to use their modules you could just, maybe there's a community modules. Technically, there actually are community modules because, interesting enough, some Fedora developers and some Debian developers decided to go in and fork all of the modules that Redis had closed the license for and created their own fork of those modules that can be used inside of the Redis system. So you could use those. I'm not really sure how they're planning on maintaining those, but they did fork them all. So if you wanted to use those, you could use them while keeping the BSD license intact for all of it. Another thing that's interesting is that uh, the 
ZDNet article that I referenced, I used in some of this from uh, Stephen John Stephen Von Nichols. Uh, he got a quote from someone that I thought was interesting to have a quote from, and that is the head of Adobe Developer Ecosystem, Matt Assay. I, I guess that's how you say it. Uh, he says, it, Matt says, it has become a fashionable to call it the cloud vendors, in particular AWS, as parasitic developers of open source values. What real world contributor data actually tells us, however, is that this view of the clouds, uh, the cloud is, is completely wrong, at least at the macro level. Google and Microsoft are orders of magnitude bigger contributors to open source communities than any other company, which is irrelevant because they're the Redis is doing this because of the way that Amazon's approaching stuff. Uh, he's, but he does say even AWS or Amazon Web Services, which has perhaps uh, correctly been criticized as not doing more, is one of the world's top 10 largest contributors. Now, it could be, Amazon could be one of the world's top 10 largest contributors, but that doesn't have anything to do necessarily with Redis. Maybe they are contributing to completely other things and not Redis themselves, because Redis's complaint is that the the new license is essentially a move against AWS. Now they didn't say specifically, but you know it basically is. Um, Salil Deshpande, I totally said that wrong. I'm sorry. The manager rectoring of Bain Capital, which is an investor in Redis Labs, he said that Amazon takes Redis, the most loved database in Stack Overflow's developer survey, survey, gives very little back and runs it as a service, rebranded as AWS Elasticash. And um, they also take many other open source projects, including Elasticsearch, Kafka, Postgres, MySQL, Docker, Hadoop, Spark, and more, and have similarly been taken and offered as AWS products. To be clear, this is not illegal, but we think it is wrong and not conducive to sustainable open source communities. So essentially what they're saying is that Amazon is taking this software, deploying it as services, or software as a service, and not giving back to the projects that they are utilizing in order to make these services. So it's possible that the uh, top 10 largest contributors has nothing to do with Redis because they're, I mean, they are contributing something back. They haven't really expressed like what exactly they're distributing back. So we don't know exactly, but it's an interesting approach because this is kind of like a, uh, uh, it's a topic that I both understand i understand both sides of like the argument that all the work is being done and they're getting taking advantage of and they don't want to be taken advantage of anymore like i understand that and they also the idea that open source is a fundamental piece and that having the freedom to collaborate without having any fear of you know licensing problems and all that is one of the fundamental pieces of open source what makes it possible so you know there's that side and there's also arguments that some open source licenses allows companies to literally take software, change nothing, rebrand it as your own software, and then sell it. You've pretty much been like adhered to the license. And uh, I can understand why that would be problematic to people, because all the work that's being put in, you know, you could be, you could be taken advantage of uh, based on the, like big corporations doing this. So I don't really have an opinion. I just thought it was an interesting topic because either way I can understand the argument for both sides. So 
Anyway, let me know what you think in the comments below because I'd love to lo to you know have a conversation uh, more in depth about this in the comments uh, because you know you know I don't have an opinion, but maybe you do. So I have a link to this uh, ZDNet uh, post in the show notes as well as some more information about the Redis Lab stuff. So link in the show notes. Thanks for watching this episode of This Week in Linux. If you'd like what I do from this show, please like that smash button and be sure to subscribe. If you'd like to support the channel, we have multiple ways to contribute with, uh, via PayPal, Patreon, and many more. You can learn more by going to tuxdigital.com slash contribute. Or you can order the Linux Everywhere t-shirt by going to tuxdigital.com slash Linux Everywhere. Or if you're in Europe, you can go to tuxdigital.com slash Linux Everywhere EU for shipping inside of Europe. We also have ways to contribute without any cost to you by using our affiliate links. You can find links for places like Amazon, Private Internet Access, and many more by going to tuxdigital.com slash affiliates. If you'd like to submit some good news to the show, then check out the subreddit by going to thisweekinlinux.reddit.com. If you'd like some more podcasting goodness from me, then check out the latest episode of Destination Linux, as I'm a co-host of that show. Just a reminder, this show is live usually every Saturday, so join us in the live chat room to discuss all the latest Linux news each week. Thanks again for watching. I'm Michael Tanell with Tux Digital, and as always, keep using, learning, and enjoying Linux.